The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 18 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC18. This is Secret Church 18, Episode 8. One more counterfeit gospel, and we're going we're gonna to fly. I mean, fly through theological liberalism. So this is a belief system. Richard Niebuhr describes a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So Niebuhr wrote uh, Christ and Culture, maybe one of the most significant theological, missiological works of the 20th century, talking about how Christians have related to culture throughout history, which is important when we think about theological liberalism because it's an attempt to adapt Christianity to a changing culture. So let's spend some time defining this term. What's theological liberalism? First, what we're not talking about, we're not talking about liberal views on the government, tax policies, other similar political issues. So get that out of your mind. We're also not talking about every Christian who disagrees with you about something in the Bible. So just because somebody disagrees with you about just anything doesn't make them a theological liberal. And we're not talking about people who reject Christianity altogether who would say they're not Christian. What we are talking about is people who call themselves Christians, yet deny scripture and orthodox Christian teaching on the primary doctrines of Christianity. Now that's admittedly a broad definition, in some ways even broader than what we were talking about with the prosperity gospel, because theological liberalism encompasses a variety of beliefs from a variety of theological traditions. So we don't have any, in a sense, an official description here. Theological liberalism looks different in different parts of the world, different points in history even. But use this broad picture of people who call themselves Christians yet deny scripture, orthodox Christian teaching on the primary doctrine of Christianity, oftentimes an attempt and an attempt to either adapt to a changing culture or appeal to an increasingly non-Christian culture. And both those important when it comes to motive. Many theological liberals claim to be making Christianity more respectable or believable for the culture at large. They'll use phrases like Christianity must change or it will die. And we want people to actually consider and believe the gospel. If we don't modify our message, then the culture will see us as completely irrelevant. So the attempt here is oftentimes to adapt to a changing culture, appeal to an increasingly non-Christian culture, oftentimes with language that appears to be biblical, even though it undercuts scripture. You may often hear the line, well, that's just your interpretation. That's an old interpretation. We have new wine for new wineskins, but that's just because, just because somebody quotes a verse doesn't mean their claim is biblical. I hope we've seen to be biblical means we interpret any part of Scripture in light of the rest of Scripture, its context, and we measure our interpretation of major doctrines like the ones we looked at tonight, not in isolation, but against the backdrop of 2,000 years worth of Christians in church history who have gone before us. We aren't the first people to interpret the Bible with the Holy Spirit, and it's a picture of humility and wisdom not to throw everything out that those who have gone before us have said. But that's just it. Theological liberalism oftentimes uses language that claims to be new and contemporary, claims to be innovative or enlightened. Maybe the most common word, progressive, progressive Christianity. Theological liberalism uses language that claims to be new, contemporary, advanced, progressive, when in reality it merely rehashes old heresies. Don't be deceived by the new and popular. It is old and parasitic. So, what beliefs characterize theological liberalism? Again, general overview. This is why you won't see tons of quotes in between these points, because this looks different in different streams of Christianity. We can unfortunately quote all day from mainstream Christianity here, from many Methodists to Episcopalian to Lutheran to Presbyterian to various Baptist streams, but these are the common characteristics to look for. Theological liberalism rejects the final authority of God's word, A common thread woven through all kinds of variations of theological liberalism is the interpretation or reinterpretation of Scripture according to modern experiences. Take a simple, obvious one in our day, marriage. 
So obviously in the United States today, we have redefined marriage in our courts in a way that is different than the Bible's definition of marriage. So that's one thing. When the culture redefines marriage, it's a whole other thing though, when the church in response to the culture then takes the Bible and reinterprets the Bible according to the culture, as if the culture and our modern experiences are now the authority. Do you see how subtly that happens? It's happening in all kinds of churches, and we shouldn't be surprised. That was the very entrance of sin into the world. Satan came to Eve and said, did God really say? Let's reinterpret his word. Theological liberalism interprets scripture according to popular reasoning and according to contemporary science. We talked about this a lot last year at Secret Church, but we won't camp out long there. Bottom line, theological liberalism exalts our experiences, our reasoning, our supposed discoveries over the authority of God's word. Second, related to that, theological liberalism rejects God's supernatural and miraculous work in history. I, I hear this in popular, supposedly evangelical Protestant preachers casting doubts on miracles in the Bible. And this didn't really happen with Jonah. This really didn't happen with Joshua or Moses. The crossing of the Red Sea is not a literal splitting of a body of water. It's a metaphor for gaining freedom from oppressive political systems. Or even the resurrection of Christ is merely a symbol of hope in the midst of difficult circumstances. I trust we realize these are not just disagreements about particularing, uh, interpreting a particular verse. These are beliefs that undercut the very foundations of the Christian faith. Theological liberalism rejects the seriousness of individual sin before a holy God by either redefining sin or relegating it to a minor offense, making salvation from sin a minor need. The way this plays out practically, so here's how you can spot this. Theological liberalism decries injustice while downplaying evangelism. Whenever you hear professing Christians talking about issues of justice in the world, yet you don't hear them emphasizing the need to proclaim the gospel for forgiveness of sins, you're getting close to, if you're not already in the midst of, theological liberalism. That's the story of the social gospel. As social issues have gradually overtaken, gradually overtook various Christians' understandings of the gospel, understanding the gospel to the point where the gospel, instead of being the good news that we've explored tonight in the word, the gospel becomes the good things that we're doing in the world. Another evidence of theological liberalism is an emphasis on general spirituality over ongoing sanctification, almost functionally new age in practice, prioritizing spiritual feelings and spiritual experience over increasing conformity to the image of Christ, belief in the truth of Christ. Fourth, theological liberalism often rejects the Bible's teaching on the person and work of Christ. Theological liberalism sees Jesus as a good moral teacher, but not the divine son of God, or sees the cross as an example of God's love, not a propitiation of God's wrath. Theological liberalism denies that God has any wrath to be appeased. Man has any need for propitiation. In these ways, it's not just the personal work of Christ, but the character and attributes of God, the necessity and nature of salvation that are called into question, which then, not surprisingly, leads to the next characteristic, rejects the Bible's teaching on judgment and eternity. Theological liberalism downplays or totally denies hell, in part because theological liberalism de-emphasizes the holiness and wrath of God. Theological liberalism almost has no category for the wrath of God. And just a side note here, it's not that theological liberalism will come out necessarily come out and say, God has no wrath. Instead, follow this, churches and pastors and Christians will just never talk about God's wrath. There are so many churches today where the Bible's teaching on judgment and eternity, hell, holiness, and wrath are hardly ever, if ever, to be heard. You look at many of the fastest growing churches in the United States, that will be the case. They may not explicitly be spreading theological liberalism, but by their silence, they're absolutely spreading the idea that God is not to be feared, judgment is not to be anticipated, and hell is not to be dreaded. And part of the reason theological liberalism spread this way, spreads this way through silence is because it rejects certain teachings in Scripture when they become unpopular or ridiculed. Hell is certainly not popular. 
I spoke not long ago to supposedly Christian university, not far from where I'm standing right now, and I just mentioned hell and the sermon, and the chaplain, dean at the school, told me he couldn't remember the last time he had heard that word in a church or chapel service. And I don't think he was saying he was glad I said it because I have not been invited back since. So... <laughs> It's not just doctrine here, it's practice. Theological liberalism is particularly prone to discount or redefine biblical ethics, ethics, saying it's a new day, we have new morals, greater understanding than we had a century ago, so we're revising what's good and evil, right and wrong, especially prevalent in views on contemporary sexuality. Just think, in many churches, not just in our culture, in many churches, sexual practices are accepted and endorsed today with appeals to the Bible that would have never been accepted and endorsed 10 years ago, much less the last 2,000 years of Christian history. But just like that, we're throwing aside not only obvious, plainly obvious interpretation of Scripture, but 2,000 years of Christians who have read those same Scriptures because those Scriptures are now unpopular or ridiculed. But that's one of the characteristics here. Theological liberalism rejects consistent teachings from the church throughout history, claims to have progressed in knowledge and understanding, and implies at least ignorance, if not foolishness, in Christians who have come before us. I was grieved the other night over dinner as... We were, I was discussing with some folks the movement among so-called LGBTQ Christians, men and women who are actively engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and woman, yet calling themselves Bible-believing, Bible-obeying Christians. And this conversation was in the context of family members who are caught up in this. And the sad part is churches, like theologically liberal churches, are saying, yes, that's Christian, and actively encouraging sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and woman, which God clearly speaks about. This is so dangerous. So how should we respond to theological liberalism? My encouragement, number one, recognize it for what it is, a non-Christian religion. It is, in Paul's words in Galatians 1, a different gospel, a distortion of the gospel when you reject the authority of God's word. Think about the five core threads of the gospel. Theological liberalism calls into question the very character of God, including his holiness and his wrath, minimizes the sinfulness of man and the sufficiency of Christ, his identity and his work, his life, his death as our substitute, his physical resurrection from the dead, redefines faith according to what fits your preferences and feels good to you and adapts to your life and places no emphasis on coming judgment before a holy God, a judgment that leads to hell for all those who have not turned from their sin and themselves to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. J. Gresham Machen sums it up well. Despite the liberal use of traditional phraseology, modern liberalism not only is a different religion from Christianity, but belongs in a different class of religions altogether. And you think about it, it makes sense because the root of theological liberalism is unbelief. It's lack of belief in God and his word. It's the exaltation of our thoughts above God's truth. That's what unites all these tenets together. Exaltation of our thoughts over God's truth. C.S. Lewis, a great quote here. And, and basically, you look through the end. By the way, did you ever meet or hear of anyone who was converted from skepticism to a liberal or demythologized Christianity? I think when the unbelievers come in at all, they come in at a good deal further. So basically, C.S. Lewis is pointing out people don't come from unbelief to belief in theological liberalism because there's nothing there to compel belief. By its very nature, it's unbelief. The root of theological liberalism is unbelief, which means the answer to theological liberalism is regeneration. The great need of men and women who are caught in this is a new heart, John chapter 3. So recognize theological liberalism for what it is. It's a counterfeit gospel. It's not the true gospel. It claims to be Christians, but it's Christian, but it's not of Christ. It's against Christ. So as a result, reject theological liberalism when you read it in a book or hear it in the church. Paul didn't play with those who were making shipwrecks of others' faith, 1 Timothy 1, and neither should we. Whenever you hear this, run even if it seems popular. Just because the church is popular doesn't mean it's preaching the true gospel. In fact, you, if the church is popular, you likely have 
reason to question if it's preaching the true gospel. Same with a book. Followers of Christ read so many books that are so unchristian with a Christian label. So be on guard, be on guard, be on guard. Hear this quote from Richard Rorty. So Rorty is adamantly opposed to Christianity, but he loves theological liberalism. Why? He says, I'm delighted that liberal theologians do their best to do what Pio Nono she said shouldn't be done. Try to accommodate Christianity to modern science, modern culture, and democratic society. If I were a fundamentalist Christian, I'd be appalled by the wishy-washiness of the liberal version of the Christian faith. But since I'm a non-believer who's frightened of the barbarity of many fundamentalist Christians, for example, their homophobia, I welcome theological liberalism. Maybe liberal the- theologians will eventually produce a version of Christianity so wishy-washy that nobody will be interested in being a Christian anymore. Rorty's absolutely right in that theological liberalism leads to a wishy-washy faith that nobody has ultimate interest in because it won't address the deepest need of their hearts. God, help us to hear this for God's sake and by God's grace, don't tolerate a pastor who preaches theological liberalism either explicitly or implicitly. As a member of the church, address this. If leadership in the church promotes theological liberalism, then go to a church where the gospel and God's word are proclaimed. Reject this, whenever you read it in a book, hear it in the church. And trust the word of God over human wisdom, experience, and reason. Trust the word of God. We are, realize, we are prone to suppress truth. This is Romans 1. We are prone to suppress truth, particularly when we don't like it, we don't want to see it, our own sinfulness, we're limited in our own understanding, our minds are small and sinful, Ephesians chapter 4. Meanwhile, God is infinitely wise, absolutely truthful, and perfectly faithful. So teach the word of God then with honest compassion and humble boldness. Both those. I pray for both these in my life. I don't presume in any way that I have them perfectly, but we need both. Honest compassion and humble boldness. So pastors, small group leaders, Bible study leaders, children, student, men, women's, men's, whatever ministry leaders, even just in disciple-making relationships with individuals, parents, with your kids in your homes, wherever, don't shrink back from teaching God's word with humble boldness, not based on your authority, but based on the authority of God's word and with honest compassion for the people you are leading and teaching. Second Timothy chapter two is a great text. Teach the word as you do. Believe God's supernatural and miraculous works in history. Remember the wondrous works he's done, his miracles, Psalm 105 verse five. Our entire faith is based on God's supernatural and miraculous works in history. Believe God, revere God's holiness. Do not let theological liberalism rob you of awe of God. Stand in awe of him, reveal, revere God's holiness, and recognize our sinfulness. Don't minimize the seriousness of sin in your life. That's the fruit of theological liberalism, the minimization of sin's offense. Don't let it happen in your heart. Hate sin. Even that which you perceive as the smallest of sin, hate it. Don't rationalize it. Run from it. Recognize our sinfulness, and when you do, refuse to minimize the, minimize the person and work of Christ. That's the beauty. The more you see sin for what it is, the more you will love and adore and worship Christ for who he is and what he has done. Don't let theological liberalism rob you of a glorious, majestic, true, breathtaking, mind-blowing view of Jesus Christ and a solemn view of the future. Realize that heaven and hell are at stake in what we believe and teach. The stakes couldn't be any higher. For you or the people around you. So hold fast to the truth of God's word. God's word. Respect the beliefs of Christians who have gone before us. Do not think that Christianity sure is glad that you and other people around you have come on the scene to figure things out that for 2,000 years other Christians haven't been able to get. You have far too high a view of yourself and your progressed thinking. Particularly when you are rehashing centuries of people whose objections to the Bible have come and gone. Stand with the line of those who've trusted God's word through changing cultural tide for tides for 2,000 years and risk opposition, ridicule, and even persecution in the culture around you for the sake of Christ in you. 
I think about even a couple of friends here tonight who are in major legal battles that are reaching to the highest levels of our country because they're operating their businesses on convictions that they hold in Christ at great risk to them, their families, their livelihood. And I praise God that they're not caving in to theological liberalism in the form of not just a culture, but churches and supposed Christians who would tell them to put aside their convictions from God's word. I praise God that they're standing on God's word along with a long line of men and women, Matthew 5, 12, who have gone before them and have held fast to faith in God's word with God's love for the spread of God's gospel. That's part of the point of tonight. We have brothers and sisters around the world right now who are not backing down in the face of persecution. So God, help us, particularly those of us who are gathered in places where we're free to worship. God, help us not to trade in our confidence in God's word just because some changing cultural tides around us. May it never be so. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.